When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the case of Dan and Carol Montecalvo? Carol Tronconi was born in Buffalo, New York in 1945. She was described as outgoing and energetic. As a teenager, she had a pronounced interest in romance. She would sneak out at night with her boyfriend. When she was 18, a friend of hers was killed in a motor vehicle collision. This forced Carol to rethink her values, after which she decided she wanted to go to college. She graduated in 1967 with a bachelor's degree in psychology. She wanted to be a psychotherapist, but over time felt as though they were too clinical and unfeeling. She decided to pursue a master's degree in education instead so that she could become a teacher. When she was in her master's program, she met a man from India, and they became romantically involved. Carol's father was not accepting of this and attempted to derail the relationship. He was unsuccessful. Carol married the man, and they moved to Madison, Wisconsin. She became upset with her new husband when he took a job about 200 miles away from their new home, and he would not negotiate with her at all. There was no room for compromise. In addition to being unhappy with him because he was not flexible, Carol was upset with him because he was emotionless. The couple divorced shortly after this. Carol had always struggled with her weight. Around this time, she was the heaviest she had ever been. Carol lived alone in Madison for about five years. She became increasingly invested in her religious belief system. She was Catholic. Carol's father would not accept her back after her divorce. Her communication with her family was minimal. In 1978, Carol became involved in a prison ministry program. She started writing an inmate named Dan Montecalvo, who was serving time in a federal prison in Wisconsin. Dan was born in Chelsea, Massachusetts in 1941, so he was about four years older than Carol. Dan had an extensive criminal history. He started committing crimes at the age of nine. His father was a criminal as well, and was shot and killed by the police. Dan started committing bank robberies. During one of the robberies, he wrote a note on the back of one of his own deposit slips and gave it to the bank teller. To avoid being deposited in jail, 
Dan withdrew from the area. He continued robbing banks. In 1970, Dan pleaded guilty to four bank robberies, and he was sentenced to 25 years in prison. He was released in 1974 after the ACLU came to his defense, saying that he was wrongly incarcerated. So he was sentenced to 25 years, and he was out in just four. Dan was arrested for impersonating a police officer shortly after being released. The charges were dropped, and he was sent to an alcohol treatment program. He broke out of the treatment center and was arrested for robbing another bank. He was sentenced to 35 years in prison. Carol thought of Dan as a challenge. He was interested in God, but he did not want to become a Christian. Carol thought that she could save Dan. She could convert him to Christianity and prevent him from continuing a life of crime. In letters he sent to Carol, Dan talked about how he had only stolen money because he had a bad childhood. He was a desperate individual. In December of 1978, Carol visited Dan in prison for about three hours. Carol felt as though she was in love with him. They married on July 14, 1980, while Dan was still in prison. Carol spent the next year and a half desperately trying to convince prison authorities that Dan should be released. She said that he had changed. She was certain of it. Evidently, she was persuasive. Dan was released from prison in January of 1981. He and Carol stayed in Wisconsin. Dan started drinking excessive quantities of alcohol not long after his release. He was arrested for soliciting a prostitute, a DUI, and violating probation. Carol sold advertising for a phone book. She was transferred to Los Angeles, California. The couple moved there and found a new church. In 1984, Dan was offered a job managing a hotel, which had been purchased by two of his friends from church. In 1985, Dan and Carol purchased a 1,300-square-foot, three-bedroom house in Burbank. Dan continued to drink excessively. Carol knew about the drinking and was concerned, but she thought that she could convince him to stop someday. Carol had gained a great deal of weight since the couple moved to Burbank. Dan never complained about the weight, therefore Carol did not want to complain too much about his drinking. Dan had a significant gambling problem and was having multiple affairs. Sometimes he would bring women back to the house when Carol was working. Dan stopped working in 1986 due to a bleeding ulcer. Now moving to the timeline of the crime. On March 31, 1988, Carol and Dan were preparing to leave on vacation. Carol had won first prize in a sales contest sponsored by her employer. It was a trip to Hawaii. Their flight was to depart the next morning. The couple took a break from packing to go for a walk in the neighborhood. At 11.01 p.m., neighbors of the couple heard a frantic scream or cry coming from their house, then heard two gunshots in close succession, and a few seconds later, a third gunshot. At 11.03 p.m., Dan Montecalvo called 911. He said, please help me. Hurry up. We've been shot. My wife is bleeding. She's dying. Hurry. He hung up the phone after 40 seconds. At 11.05 p.m., the dispatcher called him back. Dan appeared to be aggravated. He said, somebody help. My wife's been shot, and I have been shot. He went on to say that they had walked into the house, and somebody tried to kill them. After briefly talking about how the two men had left out of the front door, Dan hung up the phone again. The police arrived at the house very quickly. 
but they waited outside for about seven minutes. They were worried that a killer might be in the house. When the police finally decided to enter the house, they encountered Dan and found Carol lying face down on the floor. She had been shot once in the body and once in the head with a 38 caliber pistol. She died at the scene. Dan was taken to the hospital. He had been shot once in the lower back from behind with a 25 caliber pistol. The bullet bounced off of a rib bone and tore through his intestines. Physicians said that if Dan had not received surgery, he would have eventually died, but the gunshot was not immediately life-threatening. Here's what Dan told the police. He and his wife were out for a walk. Upon their return, they didn't immediately enter the house. Rather, Dan noticed that the registration on Carol's vehicle was about to expire. He had the new registration in the glove box of his vehicle, like the sticker that goes on the license plate. He thought that he should put the sticker on the license plate so the couple would not get pulled over by the police on their way to the airport the next day. Carol went inside the house to get a wet paper towel so Dan could clean off the license plate. As she entered the house, he heard a scream, followed by two gunshots. Dan entered the house and was grabbed by a man as soon as he walked inside. As he was fighting to get free, he heard a gunshot and felt pain in his right side. He knew there were two intruders, but he only saw the one who shot him. He was Hispanic and had a mustache. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Here's what the police found during their investigation. There were suitcases and clothing in the house positioned in a way consistent with the couple packing for a trip. A stereo system was stacked up near the front door as if somebody had been preparing to steal it. There was a cut in the screen door. Fingerprints were found in the house that did not belong to Dan or Carol. Footprints were found on the kitchen floor. They didn't belong to Dan or Carol either. There was no gunshot residue on Dan's hands. No firearms were found in the house or in the area. Carol's purse was in plain sight. Nothing had been removed from it. The home office in the house had been ransacked. A cash box in the office had been broken into. Dan said that the box contained an envelope with $800 in it. It was missing. There was a recent incident which appeared to support the intruder theory. 14 months earlier, just a few blocks away, a sheriff deputy had come home and encountered an intruder who shot him with his own gun. There were a few items in this case which made the police a little bit suspicious of Dan. Carol had $600,000 of life insurance. Dan had an extensive criminal history. 
and many of the lights were on in the house and two cars were parked in the driveway. The police were surprised that burglars would target a house in such a state. There was not enough evidence to take any action against Dan, but the police believed he was involved, almost exclusively because of his criminal history. Dan moved out of the house, put most of his belongings in a storage locker, and found a new romantic interest. About a year later, the police started following Dan. They talked to a bartender who said that Dan had pulled out a revolver and waved it around. The bartender did not call the police, rather he just asked Dan to leave. Not long after this, Dan was pulled over by the police because they thought he might be intoxicated. He fled the scene on foot but was arrested. When they searched his vehicle, they found a pistol and a 91-page manuscript. Considering that Dan lived in Burbank, I'd be more surprised if he did not have a manuscript. Like the police would start searching his vehicle and say, something here just isn't right. Where's the manuscript? The title of Dan's manuscript was Grief Denied, but in looking at a few of the passages, it's clear that it should have been titled Grammar Denied. It was the story of Dan's life and the events leading up to Carol's murder. Dan had more to worry about than the DUI or the driving with a manuscript. The pistol in his vehicle created a problem for him. He was a convicted felon and not allowed to have a firearm. In addition, Dan threatened the officers who arrested him. The police searched Dan's new residence when he was in jail. They found a book where Dan had recorded police activity. He documented various times when he saw the police following him. The police also found a piece of paper which referred to a storage locker. They searched the locker as well and found rubber gloves, ammunition, and a hollowed out book which contained what appeared to be the imprints from a 38 caliber revolver and a 25 caliber semi-automatic pistol, like the two guns had been sitting in the book for quite some time. The police did not find any firearms. Dan was charged with murder in March of 1990. At his trial, 85 witnesses testified over the course of seven weeks. He was convicted of murder and sentenced to 27 years to life in prison. 17 days after he was sentenced, he married one of Carol's close friends who had attended the same church. The couple would spend 23 joyful years together before Dan Montecalvo died of sepsis in September of 2013. Now moving to my analysis. Was Dan Montecalvo actually guilty of murder? Many people believe that he was innocent. They think that two intruders entered the house and shot Dan and Carol, and Dan was only convicted because he was a career criminal who should have been in prison anyway. Let's take a look at the evidence both for and against the idea that Dan was guilty, starting with the inculpatory evidence. In the two months preceding the murder, Dan lost $100,000 to casinos. He was repaying his gambling debts a little at a time. The day of the murder, he sent $500 to a casino. $800 was missing from the cash box in his house. This makes it seem like that's where he found the money to send to the casino. Perhaps Carol was looking for that money for the trip and then got mad at Dan when she could not find it. Carol had $600,000 worth of life insurance. Dan was a career criminal who had committed bank robberies. He drove under the influence, illegally possessed a gun, and committed many other offenses. He identified himself as a chronic liar. Dan had spoken to two acquaintances about taking out large insurance policies on their wives and then killing them. On the night of the murder, neighbors didn't see anyone leaving the house after the gunshots, although one neighbor said she heard someone in her backyard. 
Many lights were on in the house, and two cars were in the driveway. Why would intruders decide to break in under those circumstances? How did the intruders know where the cash box was, and why didn't they take Carol's purse if money was their objective? Carol was shot in the body and the head with a 38. Dan was shot once in the back with a much less powerful cartridge, 25 caliber. Why would the intruders kill one victim and leave the other one alive? A howled out book was found in Dan's storage unit, which appeared to have imprints from two guns of the same calibers used in the murders. Moving to the exculpatory factors. Dan was shot in the back. He suffered a great deal of pain from this wound. It could have killed him. Not many killers would shoot themselves intentionally, mostly because of the extreme pain and death parts. The guns used in the murder were never found, even though the police said they did search everywhere, including inside of books. Dan did not have gunshot residue on his hands. He did appear to be distraught over his wife's death. The police thought he reacted appropriately. Three months after the murder, he filed an $11 million wrongful death suit against the police, saying they took too long to enter the house. Nine months after he filed his lawsuit, he was charged with first-degree murder. The registration sticker for Carol's car was found on the driveway between the two vehicles, exactly where it should have been if Dan was telling the truth. When did Dan have the time to break open the cash box, ransack the office, stack the stereo components, hide the guns, drop the registration sticker in the driveway, and cut the screen? Fourteen months earlier, a similar crime occurred in the area when the sheriff deputy was shot and killed. The police do not know for certain if the hollowed-out book ever contained guns at all, much less a 38 and a 25. Why would Dan keep the book and dispose of the guns? In January 1991, a neighbor named Susan Brown told the police that she and a friend of hers broke into the Monte Calvo house. Susan's friend is the one who shot and killed Carol and the one who shot Dan. Susan knew some of the details she should not have known like what weapons were used, the color of the cash box, the fact that the screen door had been cut, and that Carol had lost a flip-flop. Even still, the police believed that Susan was lying. They said she had a history of mental illness. Later, Susan changed her story several times and admitted that she was lying about certain details, but still claimed responsibility for the crime. With all this in mind, do I think that Dan was guilty? I think that he was guilty in reality, but not beyond a reasonable doubt. He probably hired somebody to commit the crime. I'm still surprised he would be okay with being shot. If he was going to conspire with somebody anyway, why didn't he have them kill Carol when he was out of the house with a solid alibi? I think what happened in this case is that the police really wanted to put Dan in prison. They were angry with him because he exposed their failure to enter the house in a timely manner. He made them look like cowards, and they wanted to make him pay. The right man was sent to prison for the wrong reason. Now moving to my final thoughts. Carol had difficulty finding romantic partners due to her physical appearance. She became increasingly desperate over the years to find a partner until she finally resorted to looking inside a prison for love. Instead of continuing her search for somebody pro-social, she fantasized about fixing someone who was maladaptive. Unfortunately, that endeavor often fails. It doesn't mean that people shouldn't try to reform prisoners. It just means that getting married to them may not be the best idea in most cases.
It's one thing to take a chance, it's something else to risk one's life. Dan had a long history of being self-destructive. By marrying him, the destructive energy was now being placed not only on Dan, but on Carol. She was dragged into his world, a place where she was not equipped to survive. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men. And the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth. And together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.